This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So it's a real pleasure to be giving this talk tonight here in Trinity College. I'm not sure if you all know that this current University of Dublin is not actually the first University of Dublin, but the third. Uh, there were two attempts in the Middle Ages to establish a university here. And in both of them, the Friars of Dublin were major players. They both fizzled out for various reasons, but I think the Friars would be glad to know that the third time was indeed the charm. And they'd be glad to know, I think, that nearly 800 years after the Friars first arrived in Dublin, that we're still around and we're being welcomed so hospitably at this university. So I'm speaking tonight on stories, the stories told by Friars in the Middle Ages. It's a topic that has interested me more and more in the last few years as I came to realize how vivid and varied these stories are and with what deliberate skill they were used by, by friars. And we often associate the friars with the world of universities and we think of the, the really sophisticated works of theology and philosophy by Dominicans like Thomas Aquinas and Albert the Great and Franciscans like Bonaventure and Duns Scotus. But these university friars were a tiny minority of friars in the Middle Ages, the vast majority were popular preachers. And it's the stories they told in their preaching that we'll be considering this evening. They're a fascinating topic of study. And thankfully, there's been a good deal of excellent research on these stories in recent decades. And I've given some of the main works to you um, in the bibliography on your handout. But before we turn to Friars Tales, we should probably say a word about Friars. So what are Friars? One of the most common questions I'm asked on the street when I'm walking around like this, along with, are you the Pope? Are you an assassin? Are you a Jedi? Is, are you a monk? And you could think of friars as modified monks, but the modifications are pretty major. So broadly speaking, monks live in the countryside. They support themselves by agriculture, and their principal purpose is the worship of God in the liturgy. While friars live in towns and cities, they support themselves by begging, which is why they're called mendicant friars, begging friars. And while they certainly do worship God in the liturgy, their principal purpose is communication, the popular communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the conversion and salvation of all. That communication took the form of formal preaching, but also group conversation and debate, as well as one-to-one -one communication in the sacrament of confession. So this communicative purpose of the friars it brings us to a final difference between monks and friars. Monks take a vow of stability, a promise to stay for the most part in their monastery, while friars are meant to be itinerant, to be on the road, at least from time to time. You could be a very good monk without leaving your monastery or without chatting to anyone outside the monastery, but you'd be a bad friar if you refused to go out preaching. In the parlance of the time, you'd be a dog who refused to bark. So a community of friars is not just a place of prayer, it's a springboard for mission. Now the main orders of friars, the Dominicans, Franciscans, Carmelites and Augustinians, we'll be focusing just on the first two, they were all founded in the 13th century. They're best understood as being part of a broader reform movement in the church, associated especially with Pope Innocent III and the Fourth Lateran Council held in 1215. So this reform movement it placed a major emphasis on preaching. But at this stage in the history of the church, preaching is not something that most priests actually do. 
It's regarded as the work of bishops. But bishops, naturally enough, were often busy with many other tasks, and preaching, therefore, was often neglected by them. So what the Fourth Lateran Council requires of these busy bishops is that they appoint preachers in their diocese who will live together and go out to visit all the people in the care of that bishop, preaching sermons and hearing confessions. So the Order of Friars Minor, or the Franciscan Friars, they were founded shortly before Lateran IV, and the Order of Friars Preachers, or Dominicans, were founded just after it. And bishops quickly then saw the value of these groups as fulfilling their requirement to have itinerant preachers in their diocese. So with the support of the Pope and bishops and civic and aristocratic patrons, these orders boomed throughout Europe. So already by 1228, the Dominicans, for example, had priories everywhere from Cyprus to Sweden and from the south of Portugal to the north of England, including five priories in Ireland. My own priory and Father Allen's at St. Saviour's Priory Dublin, founded in 1224, as well as Drogheda, Waterford, Kilkenny, and Limerick. We very quickly then spread to Irish-speaking areas like Roscommon and Sligo and so on. Now, each of these communities of friars, it was a center of communication, often communicating in different vernaculars to different linguistic communities and aiming ideally to reach every group in society. And because all these communities in any given order are connected, so they're not independent communities, they're connected. Because of that, each friary is also a node in a network of mass communication in which resources are shared so as to be applied locally. So a sermon preached in one vernacular can be recorded in Latin, uploaded into the cloud, if you like, and then downloaded elsewhere to be preached in Polish or Irish or Icelandic, as in this wonderful example, a sermon that was preached by St. Vincent Ferrer, probably originally preached in Catalan, then recorded and dispersed in Latin, and then preached here in Icelandic in, I think, the 15th century. So the friars, even between the different orders, they work together across the boundaries between the orders. So at one point, for example, the Dominicans decide that they will share their sermons with other friars, Franciscans and Augustinians and so on, but not with diocesan priests. So there's a very clear sense that there was a certain kind of a guild at work here. There's a sense in which then the network of mendicant friaries, which covered medieval Europe, was one network of mass communication. I've mentioned the desire of friars to be in contact with all social groups wherever they are. And this desire is shown, for example, in the pastoral manuals that were produced by and, and circulated among the friars. So you find model sermons, for example, model sermons that circulate aimed at specific groups in society. So one collection of model sermons has sermons aimed at lepers, pilgrims, merchants and money changers, farmers, craftsmen, scholars, sailors, servants, married people, and widows. And one collection even has a model sermon aimed at people attending a jousting tournament. So the compiler of that collection, Humbert of Romans, the fifth master of the order of preachers, he notes that it's not always easy for friars to get a hearing at such tournaments, but it's worth trying, quote, because a lot of people attend them who are very much in need of instruction. We could think of the atmosphere of music, of music festivals today. It's worth 
going to try and preach the gospel there. And some people might say, no, you won't get a hearing. But Humbert says, that's precisely where you need to be. So that really sums up the ideal of the friars as popular preachers. They want to speak to all kinds of people, not just the devout, but to everybody. But it's not easy, even in a broadly Christian society, to get everybody's attention. And it's even harder to hold everybody's attention. So preaching to a crowd of strangers at a tournament or to a gathering at a market cross, it's a very different situation from, say, the abbot of a monastic community preaching to his monks. In that monastic environment, the traditional way to preach was to comment line by line on a biblical reading, patiently drawing out the rich meanings in the text with the help of commentaries by the early fathers of the church. But popular preachers don't always have patient audiences, so they have to try something different, a different communication strategy. And they develop an entirely different kind of sermon called at the time the Sermo Modernis, the modern sermon. Rather than commenting line by line on a long passage, in the Sermo Modernis, you choose one line from a reading. That's your, your thema, your theme. Then you expand on that theme by means of a distinction, maybe threefold or fourfold. And then you go through each of the elements of that distinction one by one, illustrating them with interesting comparisons from the natural world or just general human experience or from history and so on. So just to take one example, that sounds very theoretical. Take one example, a Lenten sermon that survives from the 15th century. Its thema is simply penitentiam agite, do penance, repent, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. The preacher then, having announced the thema, lists four things that might cause a Christian to do penance. Reason, treason, dread, and reward. And then he goes through each of these. So that's his, his fourfold distinction. Then he goes through each of these and he expands. So what can reason tell us about the human person, he says. And then he gives a fourfold uh, illustration of what the human person is like. The human is like a mirror, like a flower, like a tree, and like a reeve, a kind of a, a state official. Each comparison is then explained with the help of mnemonic verses, little rhyming couplets that are designed to help the congregation remember what was preached. And then he moves on, he's done with reason, he moves on to treason, and he illustrates that with a story about someone who makes a pact with the devil and so on. Then dread is expanded upon, then reward before the sermon concludes. So you can see how that kind of a sermon might hold people's attention. There's a clear structure that's announced at the start so people know what to expect. There's variety as well. And there are lots and lots of images. So it's not just the communication of ideas or of moral rules. But there's appeal to the imagination in this kind of preaching. Among the kinds of illustrations that preachers use in the Sermo Modernus, I have a special love for animal comparisons. Now, they're not our topic tonight, but I can't pass over them without saying anything. So in works known as, as bestiaries, we find descriptions of the appearance and behavior of animals, familiar animals and exotic animals as well, alongside accompanying moral or spiritual interpretations of this behavior and appearance which is ideal for the use of preachers. And sometimes it's really explicit that this is designed for, for preachers. So in this English Dominican manuscript, for example, you find dozens and dozens of comparisons. Uh, but here are two. Christ is compared to the unicorn and to the panther. That's meant to be a panther down the bottom. 
the unicorn, according to legend, the unicorn is hunted by, by placing a virgin in, in the forest. And this normally savage beast, the unicorn is famously savage, um, is made gentle by the presence of the virgin. And he places his head in her lap. And then in they come and, and kill the unicorn. And so that is used to explain the incarnation of Christ in the womb of the virgin, but also his crucifixion and so on. And then the panther was thought to have very sweet breath. So when it opens its mouth, all the animals except the dragon, sometimes in these pictures you see the dragon is running away, all the other animals are coming forward to catch a sniff of this beautiful breath. Just like the teaching of Christ, which is delightful to all except the, to the devil. Along the same lines, the phoenix rising from the ashes is Christ rising from the tomb. The hydrus, this is kind of gruesome on the top right, the hydrus eating its way out of a crocodile that has eaten it is Christ bursting out of hell. The baby elephant lifting up the aged elephant that has fallen over is Christ, small little infant child, lifting up the human race already even just um, in his infancy. These comparisons are just absolutely wonderful. And you can imagine how a good preacher might keep a congregation enthralled with illustrations like these. So the friars didn't invent this way, this new way of preaching. One of its great pioneers was a canon regular, Jacques de Vitry. But friars adopted this style of preaching with enormous enthusiasm. They think carefully about uh, the preparation and the delivery of sermons. And they develop a new genre of literature, the Ars Predicandi, manuals for preachers. So some 300 of these are written in the Middle Ages, nearly all of them by friars. And they very often include psychologically astute advice and really practical advice. They include advice for memorizing sermons. You can associate the points of a sermon with the joints of your hand. That's one little mnemonic, which is illustrated really nicely in this uh, 15th century manuscript from, um, it's a Dominican manuscript from Limerick. It was taught for about 100 years to be Franciscan, but I was delighted to find really clear evidence in it that it is a Dominican manuscript. And most scholars who work on it seem to have accepted my, my argument, which is great. It's just across the way in the library here. It's a Trinity manuscript. But you can see the sermon, various points marked on each of the joints. So this is a little mnemonic device for remembering a sermon. Um, as well as that, another manual for preachers um, uh, written by an English Dominican advises preachers when they've memorized a sermon before they go and preach to people, they should go out into the woods and preach there to the trees and the stones using all the proper gestures of a sermon. Um, as well, um, the friars in these manuals, they place great value on the illustrative examples that I mentioned above. And they focus especially on what they call exempla. So not just comparisons, like the animal comparisons, but actual narratives, brief narratives used to make a point in preaching, exemplary anecdotes, you could say. So Humbert of Romans, he advises preachers to recite good exempla. And he adds they should be careful not to tell ridiculous stories, which might be received with scorn. They should be edifying and useful, he says, not pointless jokes. And they should be true, or at least plausible, Humbert elsewhere, he insists that if friars are telling stories, they know not to be true. Stories that they're using merely as kind of narrative metaphors. They should at least signal this fact to their hearers. And they should say, this is not a true story, but it's a really nice story. Most importantly, though, Humbert tells us why it's important for preachers to use these stories. And this is text number one, I think, 
on the handout. He says, people find exemplar more moving than mere words. They are also easier to grasp and make a deeper impression on the memory. And many people find them more enjoyable to listen to, so that the sheer pleasure of them attracts some people to come to sermons. It is therefore useful that men who have been given the job of preaching should have a ready flow of such anecdotes for use in public sermons and in conferences to people who fear God and in private conversations with all kinds of people to bring help and salvation to all people. So notice the emphasis here on emotion and memory. The preacher, he wants to, to help enact lasting change for the better in those to whom he preaches. He wants conversion. He's not merely an entertainer. He knows he has to give enjoyment to his audience, but he wants to move them in such a way that they will change with stories they will later recall at times of crisis. So simply haranguing people or browbeating them with rules that might lead to shallow conformity, but that's very different from virtue. And the moral psychology of the friars at their best is sufficiently sophisticated for them to realize that. So here the, the popular preachers, they're very much in tune with the intellectual friars like Thomas Aquinas. In his vision of moral theology, the emotions, what he calls the passions, they play a really central role. Growth in virtue for him, it's largely a matter of educating the emotions. And when he treats the most important of the cardinal virtues, prudence, the virtue which oversees and guides all our actions, he underlines the importance for that virtue of memory. My teacher in moral theology is sitting here right in front of me, so I hope he's, I'm getting everything right here. If I'm going to act well in this or that situation, I should recall what has happened to me and to other people in similar situations. That's the value of memory in the virtue of prudence. And Thomas notes here that unusual and striking illustrations are particularly helpful ways to strengthen our moral memory. So Thomas Aquinas and the popular preachers there agreed, emotion and memory are key to conversion. So if the preachers were going to speak to everybody and to help everybody change for the better, then they needed stories and lots of them. So what did they do? They collected stories. There are more than 30 distinct collections of exemplar produced by friars between 1250 and 1350. And these circulate widely throughout Europe, in whole or in part. Among the most popular is the collection by 13th century Dominican Stephen of Bourbon, not very well known, but apparently he, there was a film uh, in which he was one of the main characters, Le Moine et la Sorcière. Um, that collection that he put together includes no fewer than 1,336 stories for the use of preachers. Another Dominican, Thomas of Contempré, around the same time, writes another major collection of exemplar. As does Jean Gobi, the Dominican prior of Saint Maxima, a little later, he has 972 exemplar in his collection. An English Franciscan called Nicolas Bozon writes a collection of stories for preachers in Anglo-Norman, Les Contes Moralisés. And an anonymous English Franciscan working in Ireland in the 13th century produces a collection known simply as the Liber Exemplorum, the Book of Exempla. A little later, another English Franciscan produces the Fasciculus Morum, a handbook for preachers which includes lots of little vernacular poems that could be inserted into sermons, but also many exempla. So to help preachers use these resources, the stories are often arranged by, by theme for kind of easy reference. 
So the fasciculus morum, for example, it's organized according to the seven deadly sins and the seven virtues. So if you want to, to preach a sermon on wrath, you look up that section and you've got your stories on that theme. Um, Stephen of Bourbon, he arranges his exemplar according to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Jean Gobie's themes are arranged alphabetically. The compiler of the Liber Exemplorum is a bit more haphazard. There are kind of two main parts. Higher matters, stories about Our Lady, angels, St. James, and so on. And then lower matters, which cover things like avarice, excommunication, theft, and lawyers. I kid you not, just lawyers without qualification. Thomas of Contemporary has a more unusual way of arranging things, which you can see up above. There's a little hint to his way of arranging things, even in the title of his work, Bonum Universale de Atibus, the common good concerning bees. So he, by the time he was asked by Humbert of Romans to compile a collection of exempla, he had already written an immense encyclopedia. So he takes one chapter from that encyclopedia on the behavior of bees, how they organize their society, how they choose their king. He doesn't actually know at this stage that it's a queen. It didn't even enter his head, I imagine. And at each, each point of that chapter, then becomes the heading in his collection of exempla for a little gathering of stories on that theme. So for example, he notes that the, the king bee in his mind doesn't sting. And so under that heading, he gathers stories on the clemency and gentleness appropriate to rulers and, and superiors and so on. So what sources do these compilers use? Do they limit themselves to holy kind of sources, saints' lives? Not at all. They're utterly, utterly omnivorous. They'll take any engaging narrative that can somehow, and sometimes even at a stretch, be given an edifying interpretation. So they take these stories from earlier collections of short narratives, like the dialogues of Gregory the Great, the lives of the desert fathers and mothers, both dating from late antiquity, but also from more recent collections associated with the Sermo Modernus, the new way of preaching, like the collection of Caesarius of Heisterbach, who was a Cistercian monk. One of the stories uh, Caesarius tells is, is really brilliant. He said it's something he himself witnessed. His abbot had the monks gathered in the chapter room to, to give the usual daily teaching on the rule of St. Benedict and drawing from scripture and so on. But the abbot noticed that a good number of the monks had fallen asleep. And so he changes tack then, and he starts pretending to tell a story about King Arthur. And all the monks wake up and start paying attention then. And uh, so that's one of the stories that Caesarius tells. We'll come back to that scene at the end of this talk. The friars, they draw on collections from beyond the world of Christianity as well. Most famously, the Disciplina Clericalis of Petrus Alfonsi, a Spanish Jew who converted to Christianity, I think around the beginning of the 12th century, and translated into Latin many stories and fables from the worlds of medieval Islam and Judaism. So if you see Arabs, mentioned in an exemplum, as in this Irish language manuscript from 15th century Roscommon, you can see it's about a, a Fjals of Arabia, an Arabic, an Arab philosopher. If you see Arabs mentioned in these exempla, um, you can be fairly sure that Petrus Alfonsi is in the background. The most extreme example of this intercultural traveling of stories that I know of is the story of Barlam and Josephat, which goes back originally to a second century Indian source, a Buddhist source, and comes to Europe via Baghdad. And this little story, I was delighted again, this is something I 
I was really surprised to find it made it as far as County Offaly in the 15th century. So from 2nd century India to 15th century Offaly, and the friars played their part as vectors in that, the movement of this narrative. The use, this use of non-Christian sources, it wasn't at all accidental. The friars were actually explicit in their willingness to make use of non-Christian sources. So John Bromyard, an English Dominican of the 15th century, he wrote explaining his willingness to use what he calls Gentiles' fables, in other words, the fables of non-Christians. And he wrote, concerning herbs, one neither complains about the kind of earth in which they are cultivated, nor of the gardener who has looked after them, provided they possess health-giving properties. So if we can use this story in a salutary way, what does it matter who has stewarded this story or where it has arisen? The friars, they loved stories, especially about famous kings of the past. So they drew on all the available literature about Alexander, Julius Caesar, Arthur, and especially Charlemagne. All the, the chronicles and the chansons de geste about Charlemagne and Roland and all the lads fighting in Spain, they all get in mind for short narratives to be used by preachers. Incidentally, there were nine kings picked out as being particularly virtuous or, or worthy of note, and they were known as the Nine Worthies. And apart from featuring in sermons, they featured also in medieval drama, which drama, which has very close links to, to, to preaching, of course. So in 15th century Dublin, as part of the Corpus Christi celebrations, just outside here on, on what is now College Green, it was then Hoggan Green, plays were performed acting out the great deeds of the Nine Worthies alongside a whole series of biblical dramas. There are stories about animals too, not the animal comparisons I mentioned earlier from the vestries, but stories in which individual animals are characters, kind of human-like characters, animal fables, which, whose roots go back, of course, to, to ancient Greece and beyond, actually, to, to Sumeria. Uh, some of the earliest human writing is, um, uh, um, tells the story of, of different animals acting out as humans. Um, so these fables, they gave rise to a whole cycle of literature in the 12th century in Europe, with Reynard the Fox as the main character. You might have heard of the Roman du Renard. That was the main story, but there was a whole cycle of literature about this, this fox and all his tricks um, and his, and his um, difficulties with the lion, who was the king, and, and so on. And the friars, knowing the popularity of these stories, they include them in their collections and in their preaching. So in one of these stories, which you can see illustrated here, Reynard pretends to be a preacher and he gathers this lovely congregation of birds, and then he runs off with one of them in his mouth. And this story is used by the friars to warn against false preachers and corrupt clergymen. So the, the kinds of stories they're telling, they're not always stories that are praising the, the clergy or, or, or suggesting that everything is all right in the life of the church, for example. They're, they're quite realistic about these things. And finally, a final source um, is contemporary events experienced either by the compiler himself or by his contacts. And it's here we see the communication network of the friars in action. The friars who compile these collections, they often tell us who told them such and such a story and where. So the English Franciscan ministering in Ireland, for example, he collects stories from Irish-speaking friars, like Tommaso Quinn, who tells him a story about some very strange happenings around Clonfort. He reports another story told to him in Dublin by a Danish friar who was visiting Dublin. That story includes fascinating details about contemporary Danish birthing rituals, songs and dances that went on around the birth of a child. And I shared it on Twitter 
and a few experts in medieval Scandinavia, they confirmed that it looks pretty accurate, in fact, this description. So from Denmark to Dublin and beyond, the story travels with the friars. And it works the other way too, from Ireland to the continent. So a Dominican collection from the, from the 1250s includes a story about a Dominican friar in our priory in Cork, his happy death after a time of anxiety. And Stephen of Bourbon, he got a few of his stories from Irish friars who were visiting Lyon, probably for the Council of Lyon, uh, including a terrifying story about devil worship somewhere in the mountains, somewhere in Ireland. So this network of friars, then it wasn't just a preaching network. It was a network of stories. Now, if I had more time, I'd love to tell you lots of these stories, but I'll just share with you a few of my favorite. One of the stories uh, of, of Stephen of Bourbon is introduced with a quotation from St. Bernard. The great and exceedingly glorious God became tiny and exceedingly lovable. And then the story itself tells us of a knight from France, a very proud knight, he's a French knight after all. He takes himself very seriously. But this night he wakes up on Christmas morning thinking of the infancy of God and his virgin birth. And he is so moved to love. He has an excessus amoris, an excess of love. So moved to love that he forgets his knightly dignity and he heads out into the streets singing out loud a lullaby for the Christ child. The Limerick manuscript I mentioned earlier is full of texts about the importance of study. This was the thing, this little discovery was the most exciting thing for me that I found paw prints on one of the pages. Uh, so a little cat seems to have jumped into the ink and danced across one of the pages. So nothing changes. Um, but this manuscript, as I said, it has a lot of texts about the importance of study, but it also includes a story about the dangers of being too attached to study. So we read in that manuscript about a philosophy teacher whose deceased student appears to him and the student is dressed in a cloak, um, a manuscript cloak, covered in logical problems, the kinds of logical problems that the teacher was teaching him. They're called sophismata. So this student is in purgatory and he's atoning for all his sins of academic pride and ambition. And so the teacher is instantly prompted when he wakes up to give up his academic career. Interestingly, in continental versions of this story, the teacher is named Serlo. That's what the Florentine Dominican Jacopo Passavanti calls him. But in this Irish manuscript, and here alone, he's given a more familiar name, Patrick. In the same manuscript, we find exemplar about a soldier who retains possession of a horse he had promised to sell for the welfare of his dying friend's soul. And because he retains possession of this horse, he ends up being killed by demons. There's a story about a monk whose hiding place for stolen bread is illuminated by a light and he's caught out. And the story of a deceased Cistercian monk who had been devoted to praying the Ave Maria, the Hail Mary every day, and out of his corpse, a single lily grows in recognition of this devotion. So in that selection, you get a sense of the colorful, sometimes shocking nature of these stories. They're not easily forgotten and they're sure to provoke emotional reactions, fear, wonder, joy, and so on. There's plenty of humor in these stories as well. So there's a great story about a priest who's singing his mass and he notices that a woman in the congregation seems to be very moved by his singing. The more he sings, the more she weeps. And he goes down to her after the mass to ask her why it is that she found his singing so moving. She explains that her 
Her donkey died a week earlier and the priest's voice reminded her so much of her beloved donkey's braying, she just couldn't stop crying. We might expect lots of this, these stories to focus on sexual morality, and many do, but they do so with a frankness that is often surprising and, and they're very realistic. For example, about the failures of the clergy of the age in this regard. So one story tells of a bishop who's trying to get his priest, one of his priests, to leave his concubine. And he visits the priest again and again, and the priest refuses again and again. And on his final visit after delivering an ultimatum, he's on his way to see the priest, and he meets the woman herself on the road, heading in the opposite direction. And he says, oh, you're finally leaving. And she says, oh no, I'm just going off to pay a visit to my good friend, your mistress. And that's where the story ends. So it's not so much a story about sexual morality as about hypocrisy on the part of the bishop. A similar story is told about a woman who was very chaste and very proud of her chastity, but she also had a very sharp tongue and she could be cruel, very cruel in her speech. So when she dies, it's decided that only the bottom half of her body will be buried in consecrated ground, but not the tongue. Again, it's a shocking image, but it's a powerful reminder that there are sins other than sexual sins. And again, there's a sophisticated moral psychology behind this fairly crude story. The final story I want to tell you is actually the first example I ever came across in a paleography class in Freiburg in Switzerland. And we were trying to decipher this manuscript and reading through the text and translating it and asking again and again, is this really what it says? And the teacher was saying, yes, it's a weird one, just keep going. It's about a knight who was on his way to a jousting tournament. And he's a devout knight. And he notices that there's a mass being celebrated in a church he's passing. It's a votive mass in honor of Our Lady, and he's very devoted to Our Lady. So he heads in and he stays till the end of mass. But then another votive mass in honor of Mary begins, and another after that, and another after that. And he stays for them all. By the time he leaves the church, he sees people heading home from the tournament. But unexpectedly, they're cheering him and congratulating him. Well done, Walter, you won. And he has no idea what's going on until finally, when the crowd has passed, he sees someone wearing armor identical to his, riding on a horse identical to his. And then the visor is lifted, and who is it but Our Lady herself? She had fought in the tournament in his place and won him all the glory since she was honoring, since he was honoring her. Now, this story is perfect as kind of a metaphor for the way the commune of saints intercedes for us and helps us fight our battles and so on. But if it's taken as a straightforwardly true story, it becomes quite ridiculous. Our Lady galloping at full pelt, knocking people off their horses. And that potentially ridiculous aspect of Exempla, as we've seen, caused anxiety, even for those like Humbert, who promoted the use of Exempla. There are other reasons for anxiety around these stories too. They're sensational and exciting. And there were concerns that these kind of bright neon lights were obscuring the gentler light of the gospel. So think again of that Cistercian abbot interrupting his teaching with the story about King Arthur to wake up his monks, and he scolds them when they wake for preferring secular stories to the sacred story of salvation. At times, this anxiety over the stories of preachers, it's allied to a general opposition to the friars, or at least to corruption among friars. So you see this in Piers Plowman, the friars are educated, fine, but they're very slick, avaricious, 
and they're eloquent, all too eloquent. Think of the friar in Canterbury Tales as well. We're told in all the four orders there was none so versed in small talk and flattery. He's a singer, an entertainer. He knows how to please crowds. He speaks sweetly. His eyes, we're told, twinkle like the stars in the sky. And this is the stereotype of the friar as entertainer, and it gains major currency in some circles. The most savage satirist of the friars as preachers is Erasmus in his work in praise of folly. He makes fun of the stories they tell and of the incongruity between these stories and the simple saving message they should be preaching. So I'll quote him, if they are to speak of charity, they begin their exordium with the river Nile in Egypt. If they are to expound the mystery of the cross, they very happily take a start from Baal, the Babylonian snake god. If they are to discuss fasting, they set out from the 12 signs of the zodiac. And he grants that they explain passages from the gospel in their sermons, but hastily, he says, and by the way, as it were, when in fact, it is the one thing they ought to drive home. So along with such criticism of the friars preaching as being far too fancy, there grew up a different style of preaching, one that was far simpler, one that abandoned all the rhetorical devices that the friars had so carefully promoted, including the use of exempla. So already John Wycliffe in the 14th century, he was already insisting then that preaching should be based on the exposition of the gospel, per nudum textum, by the naked text. There should be no rhetorical ornament obscuring the biblical text. Now this, as you know at this stage, this is not really a new way of preaching. It's actually a return to the expository preaching, line by line, of the monasteries. And this tradition of popular expository preaching, it continues in the Protestant Reformation. So John Calvin, for example, he, he derides the eloquence of those who, who include more than the biblical text in their sermons, who include all of these fables and so on. This eloquence, he says, which leads Christians to be taken up with an outward glitter of words and intoxicates them with empty delight and tickles their ears with a tinkling sound and covers over the cross of Christ with its empty show as with a veil. That's heavy stuff from Calvin. I think Calvin only does heavy stuff, but that's particularly heavy, a heavy criticism of this tradition of preaching. At the heart of the Catholic Church too, the friar style of preaching began to fall out of fashion. So the Council of Sens in 1528 condemned ridiculous and histrionic sermons and the use of ridiculous fables in such sermons. And the Council of Trent as well called for sobriety in preaching. Now the use of exempla in sermons didn't die off. That tradition is continuous to this day. But the golden age of the exemplum, it certainly came to an end with the Reformation. Now I don't know how new all of this was to each of you, but if it was new, I hope your interest has been sparked. These narratives, now available in, in good editions and translations for the most part, they are endlessly fascinating. They're not always reliably true, but they're nevertheless a useful tool for historians since their details often reveal the conditions of daily life, like the birthing rituals in Denmark, for example. They're not always great literature, but they help us to understand some of the great literature of the Middle Ages, Boccaccio's Decameron, Dante's Comedy, and of course, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Just as the Sermo Modernus stitched together various short narratives, 
so too do each of these works in their own way, although they do it with far greater artistry. Whether the ambiance is, is heavily ironic, as in Boccaccio, or epic, as in Dante, or bawdy, as in Chaucer. However much these authors transformed the use of these short narratives, they are in many cases dependent on the collections produced and used by preachers. So Boccaccio makes use of Jacopo Passavanti, for example. And in Purgatorio 12, and I, I dare to speak about Dante in the, in the presence of Professor uh, Salvatore Lonergan, in Purgatorio 12, Dante's list of the figures representing pride, they each have sort of sculpted uh, pavement tombs, Dante's list of them is dependent on the list of figures representing pride in a preacher's manual, that of William Peraldus. And there's a great deal more influence that is only now being uh, discovered uh, by researchers. More generally, though, these stories, I think, are valuable because they witness to a certain kind of Christian humanism, which flourished long before the so-called Renaissance. The preaching friars were experienced communicators and confessors. They were in contact at their best with an exceptionally wide range of humanity. While others feared that the story of salvation would be obscured by the dizzying variety of stories thrown up by human history and literature and contemporary experience, the friars had confidence in these stories, these moving and memorable stories, these chilling, hilarious, bizarre, touching, gruesome stories. They had confidence in these human stories to manifest and to serve rather than to obscure the story of salvation. They believed, in other words, that great dictum of St. Thomas, grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it. Thank you. Thank you.